0: Welcome to Leadership Lessons for Pastors. I have the subtitle as Putting Power and Authority in Context. My name is Dr. Thomas Pittman. I'm the Chief Academic Officer at Shepherds Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. My doctorate is in education, specifically higher education leadership. So organizational leadership has been my focus. Uh, I've served as Minister of Education at a church. I've served as a theologian in residence, as an elder, Uh, And currently I'm in a church plant, and so there's a lot of work that goes in with a church plant. So I do have an eclectic pastoral experience. More of my side is on leadership, and as we've been speaking, some of that came from the Navy and my experience in that formal uh, environment. All of us who've studied the Bible are familiar with the passages that deal with the qualifications of a leader. But probably what we haven't really thought about is the concepts of power and authority and those are foundational to understanding leadership. While having authority is not a requirement to demonstrate leadership, it does have an important consideration of how you function. So, does anybody remember the, the traditional definition of leadership? Do as I say, as I do. <laughs> well, that's, an, that's a certain leadership. <laughs> Somebody who yeah. has followers? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if if no one's following you here you're, you're not, not a leader you're you're not, not a leader. officially you're not a leader in most books it will say the ability to influence others to your way of thinking so in the secular mindset a leader is somebody that can make others think like you do you can influence them towards something now you know that that works if you're all powerful and all knowing and know everything and you have the right opinion but leadership has to be a little bit more than just influencing others especially As we look at the qualities that God calls in a leader. So we have to actually look at how leadership fits into God's plan. Now, these two verses are not about pastors, but I just want you to kind of put this in the back of your mind as we think of leadership. In 1 Peter 2 13 and 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, why does it matter, if I'm talking about pastors, do we think about civil authorities and government? If we are responsible to submit to government to such a level, how much more are we to submit to the church leadership? I mean, I think there's a higher responsibility for us within the church, and we can even go to Romans... Uh, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no, no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. What that does, though, is it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on a leader, to exhibit godly character and to make godly decisions. And so here are 20 qualifications of a leader that we can pull out of the most famous passages of calling elders in the church. And I would say the elder is the epitome of a leader for the church, although we can extrapolate to other ministries. Above reproach, so you have a good reputation. There's nothing that somebody can bring against you. Husband of one wife. So all of you Mormons that have polygamy right now, you're not going to be a leader in the church. One wife. One at
1: a time or one for life?
0: Now, if we want to get into a concept of what divorce and remarriage, uh, that's a whole other thing. But Widowhood and remarriage, there's no biblical injunction. The divorce one brings in a lot of specific passages. And there are, unfortunately, unfortunately, disqualifications In certain situations, especially, and I'll say this categorically, if you're a pastor who suffers divorce and get remarried, you have lost the qualification of pastor. So, we can have arguments of what you did prior to Christianity, we can have all kinds of arguments there, but there's no doubt that if you do it as a Christian, and especially one in leadership, you are disqualified. Not from ministry, but from the role of pastor. Temperate. Moderation in everything. There should be no area of your life that is so controlled by something that you can't be considered temperate in it. Prudent, wise, humble, careful. You, you look at everything and you carefully decide. You're not. You don't quickly make a choice. Respectable. A, a pastor with a, with a, and we'll get to an anger with an anger problem. Is really really one that's difficult to be a good role model for those behind because your congregation will reflect how you reflect on things. This this came a big problem during COVID. There were some strong voices that may be right, but were right in an uncharacteristically angry manner. And that that didn't help either. Hospitable. Uh, you guys were in Uruguay. How many have been missionaries somewhere else? Uh, Americans, we we don't we don't really do well in hospitality to a great degree. Um, inviting people into your home, we we kind of like to keep ministry outside, and our home is our family and, and and is closed off. But hospitality is important. You have to be unselfish an evangel- and generous. It's
1: an evangelistic tool.
0: It is an amazing evangelistic tool, absolutely. But we're so used to kind of that's our our hiding place to keep safe. In certain areas it's changed my, can I talk? yeah uh, my sister and her husband were the youth leaders in their home, they wasn't even a pastor but she wrote everybody in the church on a list and invited them for mm-hmm. Sunday
1: dinner mm-hmm. all through the
0: the calendar I'm I'm not the pastor of the church but we've invited every family in our church to lunch after church because the only way you can know people is if you actually
1: interact with people and, and in the Eastern context, and a lot around, around the world, like even with the Navos, if you don't break bread, if you don't eat a meal with them, you are saying, you are not my equal, I don't accept you, I won't participate, we have no community. And that's why the Bible says, if somebody says they're a Christian, but they're living an ungodly lifestyle, have nothing to do with them, because what you're doing by having a meal with them is saying...
0: I condone what they're doing. And the community knows that message. Think think of the Middle Eastern context. It's not just come in and share a meal with me, break bread with me. It's I have taken the responsibility of your safety. Mm. You are part of my family because you've been invited into my home. So this is a qualification. Um, If you have a pastor who you've never sat down with, we're starting to see some problems in our modern context of the church, especially the mega church, where you never, never meet them. Uh, able to teach. Leaders are, are required to be able to teach, which means they actually need to know content. they got to have the content in order to be able to teach it. Not given to mind, wine. <laughs> Free from addiction. You know, and we can broaden that as necessary through the New Testament and the Old Testament, but... That's a big one. Not self-willed. This is one where we've talked about controlling. It has to be my way. That's, that's not a leader. Not quick-tempered. Void of anger. I always, I always say this thing. I didn't know how selfish I was until I got married. I didn't know how angry or impatient I was till I had children. If you want refining, have children. They will test you in every place you're not ready. Not pugnacious, not abusive. It's one thing to just be angry and controlling. It's another thing to beat down those around you to try to force them to to come under your your control. Not argumentative, uncontentious. Hey, we have strong views in the IFCA, right? Or we're... we're pretty solid in what we believe. But if we present that in a contentious manner, nobody will ever want to listen to us. We can be strong without being argumentative. Gentle, sensitive, loving, kind. Free from the love of money. You know, it doesn't have to be necessarily frugal to the, the extent of frugal, but you can't be desiring riches from the pastorate. You manage your household well, good husband, good father. You have a good reputation. Your testimony is good. You love what is good. You're pursuing godliness and it can be seen. You're just, which means wise, fair, non prejudiced, devout, holy, and righteous. And the important one that we fail so often in our culture is not a new convert. A lot of times we do celebrity Christianity. Somebody has all of a sudden an amazing platform and we lift them up really high just to wait and see and watch them fall. I say that because I have a book in my library, like many of you have books in your library. It has four endorsements. Three of them have fallen from the faith. They got famous quickly or even longer than that. And they did not have that root really built in. Their head got built up and they've fallen. And it was a book on pastoral integrity. It's a problem. Isn't it hard just to measure up to this? Not everybody should be a leader in the church. In our modern church planting movement, we like to take young guys that have the heart and the hands and want to do it, and then throw it at the wall that they're all of a sudden the pastor, and they've never sat under leadership, they've never been mentored, they've never done anything to understand what ministry is truly like. And even in churches that have mentored programs, I was in one of those. My pastor had no ability to mentor. Because I was in seminary, he just assumed I'm learning it and left me to figure it out. That's not leadership. And that's why the church is being damaged today. So what is the responsibility of a leader? There's... uh, Ah, it's going the wrong way. Come on. Yeah, my computer hates me. It's all good. I'll find it. Responsibilities of a leader. You are to teach biblical truth. Absolutely, that is your responsibility. How can you teach something you don't know, however? Does it require you to go to seminary to learn biblical truth? No. Is it one of the more effective ways for us to learn biblical truth, you would Yes, and if you go to the right school. But why? Because most of us don't have the self-discipline to do it on our own. In our age, with the resources that you have, with the technology you have, there is nothing you couldn't get to that we can't, uh, that's what we used to give you in the seminary. Absolutely. We're not disciplined to do it on our own. Why do you learn it in seminary? Because you're going to get a grade and we don't like bad grades and we're paying money for it and we're forced to do the work to think through it. But to teach it, you got to know it. So yes, I'm an advocate for seminary, but because most of us don't learn it on our own, and I think it's an effective way to do it, if we can keep costs down. We're supposed to be the model of Christ-like behavior. They should be able to look at us, especially in the midst of the trials and the difficulties, and see an example of how to respond to whatever's going on. How did everybody respond during COVID? Mm. Give me some examples. How did people respond? Fear, Absolute fear. So what doctrine of the Bible does that call into question?
1: Most of them. God has not given us fear fear of and love and sound mind.
0: There's that, and that's the one I was looking for, God's sovereignty. So what are we ultimately saying? We don't understand that God is in control and not us. As a culture, and even in the church, we thought we could control a thing that's so far beyond our control. And when we, out of fear, we wanted to lock ourselves and be able to be in charge. You could do everything right and still get sick, you could do everything wrong and never get sick. God's the one in control. It, it challenges living out our actual theology, doctrinal purity. I I hate to pick on the SBC, but they've been the most in the news of recent years. And having been a former SBC minister, at least I can say I have the right in some sense to pick on them. Why are they having a problem today? Besides the sexual assault issue, what is their problem?
1: They're across the board anything from, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe the Trinity, I don't believe the virgin birth, all the way to the, you bet we do believe those things. And it's like they're
0: tolerating... The tent is too big. The tent is too big. Their guns are pointed at each other because their arguments are within differences across Christianity. Amillennial, premillennial. Covenant versus dispensational. Uh, Complementarian versus egalitarian. All in the same camp. Of course they're not going to get along. These are major doctrines that they disagree on. Polity issues have been a big one. Elder run congregational rule. If you're in the same tent... The guy next to you isn't somebody you can necessarily trust, because his doctrine could be entirely opposite yours. That, that's one of the strengths of the IFCA, is we're so specific, it does limit who can be a part of that fellowship. But we're not arguing major doctrinal differences. Anything we argue is going to be in the minutia, not the majors. But a leader has to maintain that, which means you have to actually be the gatekeeper to who can teach in your church, who you bring in to preach in your church, any ministry, any book that you use for Sunday school, you any music that you use in worship, which puts an entire uh, uh, an amazing amount of work on the single pastor who does to do everything by himself. It's hard. The thing we really don't like to do... Is discipling or even disciplining unruly believers? Why are churches afraid of, do, of maintaining church discipline? Or what's the excuse? We we want to be liked. We want to be liked, and we don't want to be unloving. Unloving. It's,
1: it's disrespecting the bride of Christ. It's
0: not protecting people. We want their money. Well, uh, there's some of that. Or the why? Should, if I do it, they'll just go to the church right there. They'll just go to the other church. So. Let's keep them here so we can fix them, while we damage everybody else.
1: Dependency
0: is wonderful. Overseeing financial matters. You as a pastor, this is where we fail a lot of times in Christian ministry. You you are in charge of the stability of your institution. Now, maybe you're not a financial genius, but what do you do? You bring up people who you can trust that are you rely on the wisdom of other people. But you are ultimately in charge of the stability of your church. Which means you have to vet the right people to be in charge of stuff. We'll get to delegation, absolutely, use people, but you're in charge. you got to pray for those who are ill. You do got to do visitation. If you are so disconnected for those that are hurting, that makes the example of Christ disconnected for those that are hurting. And people won't go to Christ when they need something. Are we only supposed to go to Christ in the major crises? We get so used to only coming to Him as a last resort. You know what? We could take everything, every day, no matter how small to Christ. Christ, it's not like He's limited in what He can respond to. God Almighty, infinite in every way. You could pray to Him constantly, all day, pray without ceasing on every little thing, and it doesn't burden Him in the least. You're not becoming a gnat. But we have to be the ones that care first. That's leadership. That's our responsibility. Now, there's two styles of leadership that you hear all the time in Christian circles. One predominates over the other. And obviously I've given you the answer. What's the first one? Servant Servant leadership. Something like 85-90% to of Christian organizations in the country have some kind of statement that uses the word servant, servanthood, something of that caliber. And where do we get that? From Jesus. Right? Jesus uses the term leader six times in the New Testament, but he uses servant 900 times. Do you think that that's important? Leadership is one thing. He's like, yeah, leadership, but servant or servanthood is one of the most important concepts in the New Testament. My problem with this, and we use it too, but my problem with this is do you know that this is actually a term coined by a secular businessman in the 70s, Robert Greenleaf. So it actually, and there's been many iterations of it, but it is an actual leadership theory developed by a guy who worked for AT&T for 40 years, and he wanted to create some positive development within his employees. And yes, there's some great characteristics, and we're going to go through them. But we have to be careful. we need to redefine it to take it for Christ in a way that disconnects it in the secular mind, from a leadership theory to a Jesus a Jesus model. So servant leadership had nine characteristics. Listening means you listen and be accessible to people. <clears throat> That's a characteristic of a servant leader. Accessible. You as pastor actually have to be able to be accessible from your congregants. Good listening means paying close attention to what they say, but also the mood, the body language. you, you got to be skilled in communication. You guys know when somebody's lying to you sometimes. I mean, you can kind of tell that. Anybody who's got children knows when a child is lying to you. I mean, they get better at it, but you, you know. You have to root out what they're really saying without them saying it. Which means, (laughs) we've all said this, one mouth, two ears, what are you supposed to do more of? We're good at the talking portion. We do it all the time. It's the listening portion we actually got to work on. I mean, we can look at James 1, 19 and 20, famous passage. We all know that one, right? I like this one. It's a right straw epistle. you know this my beloved brothers and sisters everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger for a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God don't be quick to respond slow down listen more empathy empathy is the attempt to understand the emotion behavior and intention of others Empathy is supportive and aids in the the development of trust. You hurt when they hurt. Biblical, right? When they hurt, you hurt. When they mourn, you mourn. Healing. This is the context addressed in spiritual and emotional damage gathered through life experience. In this setting, you have to create a positive environment where they feel welcome and a sense of wellness they got to feel safe when they're in your church. You have to preach truth, which means you're going to confront sin. If you're not confronting sin from the pulpit, there's already a problem. But you have to do it in a way that doesn't add to the damage, that understands that you're bringing in people from outside that don't know Christ. You still have to do the message, and every message shouldn't be the gospel. Because the purpose of the church is to equip the saints. But the reality is, most people aren't evangelizing out there. They just want to bring their friend into the church so that the pastor can get it to them. Knowing that that's a reality, you have to have empathy and healing towards those that are there. You still preach the truth. We just don't do it as much hellfire and brimstone as we used to. used to be able to scare people all the time, you know. Jonathan Edwards, you're but hanging on a spider's thread over the chasm of hell, and one little thing will drop you in there. I mean, that, that used to work. It doesn't quite work the same anymore. You have to be really paying attention. So you have to nurture trust. You have to encourage. You have to watch listening and body language. You have to think about them, which means being a pastor is hard persuasion I said that one of the definitions was getting people to think like you do and and that is a responsibility from us but who are we trying to get them to think like? like Christ they got to trust us in order for them to believe us so that the words that we speak will have impact we don't want to just do it from a power relationship I'm the authority, listen to me we do it by our character, that what we say has value, and then they want to emulate it. Conceptualize. This is more, obviously, this was created for a broader market than just the church. But this is getting people to see the whole picture and the shared goals, and how they fit in. So in the church context, who's gifted in the church? Everybody. Everyone. Everyone. Getting them to figure out what that gift is, is the struggle. And finding out that they're in the wrong place that they think that they're gifted in and getting them shifted to the area that they're actually gifted in takes trust and it's, it's a slow process. And in small churches, people are always going to work in places that they're not gifted. Because 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Because they're the only ones willing. But the worst thing you can do is have the wrong person in the wrong position. Foresight, you have to see the possible future things that are coming. Problems from, from look at the culture. Are, are we all practicing foresight right now? What might come? What might come? But well, we can't be gripped by fear, but we can't un, be unprepared. How many, how many churches did COVID take off guard in relation to Zoom technology or doing anything over screen? We will never do anything over the screen, ever. Okay, well, now you have no contact with any of your congregants. Because as we have to bow to authorities, biblical authorities, you know, we were called to listen to the government. In many states, we didn't have a choice but to do it for a time. And we were woefully unprepared. For good reason, in some sense. I want them in the church, not on the screen. But nowadays, how many people have we been able to reach that are shut-ins with our messages that we've never really got to reach before? <clears throat> there's a, there's a, a good godly purpose for doing it. We just got to convince people that are have, doing it for an ungodly purpose because they, they're they separated. Stewardship. We all know what stewardship is. Responsibility. Take responsibility for our actions. We actually pay attention to the resources we have, and we use them wisely. You know that all of us, schools alike in the Christian thing, we're supposed to be stewards of creation, stewards of everything. We're not supposed to just spend money. You know, We, we have to be careful because none of us are independently wealthy, right? Is your church independently wealthy? No. Oh, right your church independently wealthy, either is our school. We actually have to be careful with our resources so that at the end of the year our statement is in the black and we're not in trouble. Amazing how that works. You have to have a commitment to the growth of people. You actually have to care that they grow from where they are to something better. This includes not only the congregants, but your staff. Who's supposed to be the next pastor from the biblical model when you decide to retire? Someone in your church. Someone that you've invested in from your church that you brought in to grow. What have we done mostly in the church? Say We've done a business model. We're going to post the job, we're going to interview candidates from a wide variety of places, and basically we're going to bring somebody that doesn't know us and test them enough to take over. Now, un- sometimes that's all we have. We don't have anybody that can be groomed. But the most effective way is to be groomed from within. You're then you, people have watched you grow, they see your character, you've invested in them, and you're trusted from the get go. You have to build community. You don't just build community internally, you've got to build community in your community. Does your church do anything in the midst of what goes on in the place that you live? You know, in my context, they have street fairs. I'm not, I'm not even just talking going and evangelizing the Walmart or whatever. They have street fairs. We always put a booth up to be a part of what's going on, even if we don't necessarily want to celebrate the things. Now, I'm not saying we do the pride event, you know, uh, but if there's some kind of city celebration that just celebrates your city and they do a street fair... We usually put a booth out that's, uh, and we use uh, some place that the moms can actually change the diapers because people always forget that in a place like that. And we provide water and then we actually try to provide something, some kind of value while we share the gospel. Never without the gospel. But you you got to be seen as caring in your community. I know your, your, yours does a lot of EMT and firefighter work, which would be a unique one. But because of that, your community knows that your church cares for its community. Now, the other model, transformational leadership. Many people think servant leadership is an effective model of transformational leadership. The one problem I have with servant leadership is did you find a gap anywhere in there? As a model, it doesn't talk about the character of the leader at all. It only talks about how to get the people to listen, or the care that you have, but not the integrity of the leader itself. I think that's why we have to be careful with this terminology from a secular 1970. He he assumed that he was doing all the right things, and if you did all these care, everything would work out. But we don't know how his character was. We saw his actions, but not his heart. Transformational leadership is a little bit better, but it's definitely more organizational. But of all the books I've read, these are the only two models that show up in Christian works. Besides like the John Maxwell and the Henry Blanchard and the more business model. This one I like in a, in a way because the first thing it says is you have to model the way. You have to be the model. How many times did Paul say imitate me? Yes, I imitate it's nine or ten times. And I used to think, Paul, that is such a a bold statement. I mean, shouldn't we just say imitate Christ? And basically what he's saying is, if you don't understand that yet, at least do what I do as I strive to do that. It's almost a halfway point. If you don't get this from Christ, just start doing what I'm doing because as I'm growing towards Christ, you will do so too. I like the old triangle for marriage. You've seen that one. You're on one corner, you know, your spouse is on the other corner, and God's at the top. You not have to strive towards your, your spouse. You both strive towards God and you get close together no matter what. If we're striving towards Paul, we'll get better. I like first Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to twenty. There's twelve characteristics that you can find of Paul in that text. It's an amazing text on Paul, the things that we can emulate. I think sometimes we don't do a very good job of number two in the church, and that's inspire a shared vision. What is the mission and vision of your church? And should you revisit your statement to make sure that that's really what your heart is to do? You want your church on board with what you're trying to accomplish. Number three is what we all struggle with. Challenge the process means... Be willing to change something that doesn't work or could get better. And what's the word we hate the most in there? Change. Change. Anybody like change? You might like the, the end result after the process is done and things are better, but nobody likes the process of having to change something. but the worst thing I can say in any organization is that's the way we've always done it. We can't change that. That's the way we've always done it. Yes, but we went from a church of 700 to a church of 100 because something that we always did no longer works in our cultural context today. We could do everything right and reach a generation, but the problem is, is the next generation does not hold the values of the previous generation. If you do it the same way, you're thinking, I'm doing everything right, but they're not receiving it the same way. It's not meeting the needs that they have. What's the biggest difference between these youngest two generations that are existent today and all of us that are older? You're the younger one, you don't count.
1: They're much more visual and audio than, they're like, we don't read a book. Why? They don't like to read it. Well, some of them don't know how.
0: Well, besides that, why? What was the biggest change in that? We talked about it a little bit earlier. Like TV. Well, that was our generation. Yeah. but yeah. Everything is done through technology. Everything in their life has been done through a screen. Yeah. Everything. Their social connections start online before they're made in person.
1: The smart.
0: Smartphone, smart computer. <laughs> smart thermostats,
1: smart smart locks, smart smart lights, smart cars.
0: Whatever. <laughs> well, we we uh, uh, generational studies. You have the builder generation that uh, survived the depression, fought World War II, and, and celebrate them. I mean, celebrate the young men that charged the beaches of Normandy, the last World War II medal of honor winner just passed away celebrate them there is nothing that compares to the bravery of Metro that went there builder generation but they were so frugal my grandfather had every butter top lid that he had ever bought and and when we moved him just drawers of butter top lids you You know did not throw anything away because when you live through the depression nothing could be wasted The boomer generation, I'm not picking on boomers, but they hated that. It was all about money and career and materialism. They came out and they they just, they didn't want to be like that. They wanted to spend money. They wanted to buy the the conveniences. They wanted something different. Then they had kids. My generation, Gen X, we're considered the latchkey kids. Both of our parents working, trying to make money. We almost never interacted with them. MTV raised us. You know? uh, Babysitters and MTV in the school system. Our generations like Han Solo and Star Wars were so disconnected, we feel like loners. We have kids. We want to be their friends. We don't want to be so disconnected. We want to be the buddy, not the parent. So you have a generation that doesn't know discipline. They have kids. Their kids are scared of everything. Safe spaces. Protect them from every harsh idea. They're the ones that got a trophy for walking in the door. Today, in some of the schools, turning in an assignment, you get an automatic, or if you don't turn it in, you get an automatic 50%. A zero in my generation is now a 50% in their generation. Orders from the school district to do this. I can't fix how they've been brought up. What I can do is present Christ in a way that they can respond to in a medium in a way that understands that I care about them. I can't expect them to be the builder generation. That's not the values that they grew up with. If I approach them like they were approached, it's never going to cross the threshold. So we do have to change and challenge, enable others to act. We actually have to delegate to people to do something. And sometimes they won't do it as good as you could. And that's okay.
1: You need permission to fail. I was never taught that it was okay to be human and to fail at something and
0: not be perfect at something. Mm-hmm. So then you do nothing. But if you don't give others yes. the opportunity to even try to make decisions, you don't groom anybody that can lead after you. You do have to fail. You do have to strive, make mistakes, and grow. Yes, we put boundaries on that. You know, you don't let put them in charge of a ministry and never check on them. But you do got to let them do it even if it isn't as good as you think you could do, or even if it's different than you would do, as long as it doesn't violate the faith. And you got to encourage people. When I first got saved, I had the spiritual gift of discouragement.
1: <laughs>
0: I could tell you everything you're doing wrong. Everything you're doing wrong. Really couldn't encourage you in what you were doing right, because all I saw was the failure and the sin. Pointing out your sin is fine. Confronting sin is fine, but if we don't ever encourage something, people begin to think that they don't have a chance again. And is that how God treats us? If you confess your sin, He's faithful, just, to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Anybody here sinless? No. Not yet. Not yet. I will be one day. I will be one day. I got but the title, not yet. but I. I grew up in the Nazarene denomination. They believed in perfection of the flesh. I'm like, I haven't seen any of you get there yet. When is this going to happen? We have to encourage people. All right, so how can we talk about Jesus? I mean, if that's, that's the most important thing, right? We can talk about leadership all day, theories, all this stuff. How, what, what kind of examples does Jesus give us? It shall not be so among you. Let's go to Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Alright. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those in high position exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to become first among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus takes the pyramid and flips it upside down. He says the leader's job is to serve up. He taught the disciples that the kingdom was not about leading people, being in charge, but to be radically different. What he modeled was not command and control or status and power, but about character and servant, a servant heart. Now, you're in charge of an organization. You're in charge of a church. You're the first servant among many. Yes, you're also the one in charge. Yes, you have authority. Yes, you have power. God has given you a position. But how you exercise it has to be as a servant. That doesn't mean you kowtow to every idea that comes across. You have to say no. But you have to serve the need. The greatest among you. We know this. Who is arguing about who is the greatest? James and John. What do they want to do is... When you come into your kingdom, I want to be on this side and, you know, my brother on this side. Give us that preeminent spot. We know that you're the God. We want to be right there in the favored position. How many pastors treat the world and how many people try to suck up next to them so that they can be in that favored position? It's the wrong place. It's the wrong place. That you should also do just as I have done to you. What did, he, what did he just do washed their, Wash their feet. Why is that such a big thing? What, what was it about the feet?
1: Well, they' having a meal the feet of one person was in the face of another person
0: they, they were reclining but why, why were washing it so important? What are they wearing?
1: Sandals, Sandals.
0: Sandals. Where do they live? Desert <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it's mostly desert. If you've ever, okay, let's all wear sandals and walk around Albuquerque for a little bit through the, you know, not on the pavement, but through the dirt. How dirty are our feet going to be? Well, no, they had the, they would have their sewage out and their Well, there's, there's, more, than yeah, well, <laughs> there's more than just dirt. Yeah, there's more than just dirt. You know, I have a farm. If you guys want to walk around barefoot in my farm, please don't step in my house kind of Cap thing. pens are wonderful. <laughs> don't bring it And who the usually did that? Soloist. So or slave. That was the slave's job. Or if you had servants, a Jewish servant, the lowest servant's job. You know, what a shock it is if the president all of a sudden walked in here and we started washing our feet. Would he ever do that in our culture? Do we ever see a leader that would actually kind of do that kind of menial task? Some have better policies than others, but I don't see any of them that have ever shed their pride to do that kind of job. This last one I think is important. The wisdom of this world is folly. Why does that matter? What what does that mean in the context of leadership? We need to stop taking the systems of this world and trying to Christianize them to put them in the church. What was the seeker-sensitive movement all about? It was a business model that said, if we got more people in there, maybe we will fix more people. But in order to get them in there, what do we have to do? We had to water down the message to make it where it's not uncomfortable for everybody to come in. Now, I like Billy Graham. I'm in the state that celebrates Billy Graham, and everything. But the crusade method of putting seventy thousand people in a thing—what what's missing after the message of Christ? Discipleship. You can't really tell who got in and who got out, but that's not the that that's the first step of bringing somebody in. Is then to disciple them in the truth and in the way. Yeah, it was great that a whole lot, lot of people got to hear the message, but our church is suffering because it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. That's why you see all these stats from like Barna and everybody else that says that the problems in the church are no different than the problems, like the number of divorces and things like that, than the secular world at large. That's horrific. Why? Because we're a mile wide and an inch deep. Everybody's understanding of Christianity is so flawed. You know, we're, we're, what wing are we on? Well, we're on the right side. We could say broadly evangelical, but we're IFCA, so we're even farther over into this fundamentalist group. We're, in, we're a niche. But if you look at the stats for those that go to church like three or more times a month or pray daily, it is vastly different from the culture at large. The divorce rate there isn't even close to what it is at large. The suicide rate and the depression rate isn't even close to what it is at large. Because if you actually take this word as truth, and you apply it, you're taking the words of the very God of the universe that created everything that is absolute truth, and so since it's absolute truth, it actually works. But as we keep following the wisdom of the world... We're muddying the waters, and I know you'll hear things like "all truth is God's truth." And yeah, we could say that. I get it. If you find a truth that is actually a universal truth, great. The problem is, how do we know if God hasn't said it? How do we know it's really true? And I'll take physics as an example. How many times has physics changed? No matter what the sciences have come up with, because they realize there was a flaw in the formula, like "oh, we didn't consider this." Now we have to go from you know Isaac Newton to. A different style. Only if God says it, do we have perfect confidence that it's true. Genesis 1. Who created everything? Well, automatically we could reject most of what they say everywhere because they believe in evolution rather than God created. They can be godly. They can be falling after Christ and be very, very wrong. Let's not take after the world.
1: I think we're lacking discernment. Why Why
0: would we lack discernment, though?
1: We don't care. We like to be comfortable. We're not reading the Word. We're not letting it tell us. We're not letting it give us the marching orders. We're trying to pick
0: and choose like a buffet table. Well, I think you had the answer there. We're not in the Word. And we're apathetic. If we're not in the Word, how can we know what truth is? Man, I could give you tricks. I, I, my commute every day is 35 minutes to work. You could put the Bible on, on audio, you know, Kindle or Audible or anything. You could b- listen to books that teach you. My wife's been on biographies lately of great Christians George Mueller, you know, uh, Hudson uh, Taylor. I mean, just great stories of people that put their faith in God and had an amazing result. But you don't always get an amazing result. Look at Jeremiah. What was Jeremiah told? You're going to preach and nobody's going to ever listen to you. But do it anyway because I've asked you to do it. Hosea, Mary Harlot, you know, this is going to go badly, but do it anyway because I want this as an example to teach you. We still listen. But we have to look at the characteristics of a leader. These are 25 characteristics of a leader that I pulled from Gene Getz and John MacArthur, books that they had. 25 characteristics of how to show your leadership. You're trustworthy. If you're trustworthy, what does it mean? It means that you're known for telling the truth. People can believe you. You take initiative. A leader doesn't wait for somebody else to do what needs to be done you find a way to get it done. Maybe it's not you, but you find somebody in order to accomplish it. You've got to use good judgment. You do have to speak with authority, but whose authority are you speaking with? God's. If you ever get that mixed up, you forget that you're the under-shepherd to the shepherd, you lost the we've place. lost the rest of it. Now you're in violation. You have to strengthen others. Build up. Why do we come to this convention?
1: Fellowship and, encouragement.
0: Fellowship and encouragement that helps strengthen us as we go back. What that assumes is that we get discouraged in the midst of ministry. Why do we get discouraged? The number one problem of pastors is what? Loneliness. You feel isolated you feel like you're the only one doing something, and you really don't feel like most of the time you have somebody in your church you can confide in or vent to. My buddy Corey Marsh just walked in. When I want to vent, I call Corey. He's not a part of my church, a godly man. If I want to vent, I call him. Because he knows I'm just venting. I mean, He he can listen and encourage. You have to be optimistic and enthusiastic. If you're the pessimist in your church you're not going to have a very good church. You have to really think that that believe God enough to know that he's in charge and it's going to be okay regardless of the situation. It's going to be okay. You know for you this is your hell. This is the worst it could ever get. For the unbeliever, this is their heaven. This is the best that can it could ever get. And if their life is miserable now and this is the best they can ever get, and you're not optimistic enough to give them hope, there's a problem. You never compromise the absolutes. You never compromise this for any reason. Not for missionary endeavors, not for to bring more people in your church. Every time you do something like that, you sacrifice effectiveness and it's not going to actually build you. It's going to create a... A house of cards that when that one finally falls, everything comes tumbling down. I hate picking on people that have fallen, but Robbie Zacharias. How has that ministry crumbled because of his sin? Name any other big organizations that have absolutely crumbled because they compromised moral doctrine or something and it just falls apart. And the world loves to point at that and laugh and say, this is what Christians are like. This is the hypocrisy of them. You know what? You focus on objectives and not obstacles. You stop complaining about the things that are in your way, and you focus more on, how do I get this accomplished? If there's an obstacle, how do I go around it? Mm. Yes, there's a guy one of the black game show guys, I
1: forget he did the Family Feud, somebody knows the name, I can't think of it right now. Steve Harvey. Yeah. He, I saw a little video blurb and just a good reminder, he said, stop saying, I gotta get up, I gotta go to work, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, and say, I get to get up, I get to live life, I get to work with these people, I get to. And I think that, it, we need a biblical perspective and that Jesus was on mission. He wasn't looking at what was in his way. He saw the cross and he saw what was on the other side. And like in football and other sports, you gotta you know, go to the wall or the other player. You gotta you, your mind and your body, your whole soul has to be in the, I'm gonna get it to the other side. Sorry you're in the way.
0: And that is that, that's just is, is work part of the curse? that's the problem with us we think work is part of the curse we've not read the text enough to realize that there was jobs assigned prior to the curse it got harder but it existed prior you know what? it's going to exist after there's responsibility work is not part of the curse which means we have a mission to accomplish we have to empower by example we gotta empower others by our example. We gotta cultivate healthy loyalty. Now I say healthy loyalty because there's too often we cultivate loyalty, but what we're really doing is cultivate a cult of following for my way of thinking rather than God's way of thinking. Yes, we want people to be loyal to your church. We don't want them to fall off to any other church because they don't like the challenges. We want them to be loyal, but we want it to be a healthy loyalty. You have empathy. I already spoke about empathy. You have to care. you got to keep a clear conscience. You as pastor, are you ever going to fail? Mm. Yes. You ever going to preach a bad sermon? Yeah. You ever going to preach a sermon and you were wrong doctrinally because you misunderstood the text? Absolutely. And I encourage you not to go read your sermons from 10 years ago. Don't do it. Because you're going to be like, ah, I'm going to have to redo this entire book because I did this wrong because I had this area wrong. We're not perfect. We're going to be constantly growing. But we've got to keep a clear conscience before God. we got to admit our faults. Admit our failures. Not try to hide them and gloss over them. We do have to be definite and decisive. An indecisive believer never accomplished anything. Your church, often, nobody's going to want to do anything or nobody's going to want to try to do anything. You ever been in churches where the, it's death by meeting? <laughs> death by congregational meeting? Oh, man. Committee after committee? Maybe you guys haven't been in that kind of church. We never get anything done. That's a joke about Southern Baptists. I know, I was a Southern Baptist minister. <laughs> I was on like 16 committees. It's hard to get anything done. And, and not to pick on Southern Baptists, but now I need a committee to determine what the name pastor means. You've, got, you've had it right for hundred years. Why is it in question now? You know what it means. You know when to change your mind. If it's failing, don't keep doing it. Don't keep going down the road because you think somehow magically it's going to change. Stop it, turn back, find another route. The longer you go down the wrong road, the longer it takes to get back to a point where you can change. I say a, le- a leader doesn't abuse his authority. Why do I, anybody, ever have to say that? Because there's an entire style of leadership called authorita- authoritarian leadership. For those of us that have served in the military, we know what authoritarian leadership is. Do you ever get to question your leadership? No, it doesn't go well. They teach, they used to teach, and I don't know if they still do, they used to teach in OCS that when you take over a division, you change something even if it's less effective so that you could show who's in charge. I think that's some of the worst leadership advice you could possibly do. If something's working, let it work. But don't abuse your authority. Don't come in. Um, I won't tell you where, and I won't tell you why, but there was a, a, they were searching for a, a pastor. They had worked on for a long time, for a year, on the vision and mission and everything of a church. And the reason why somebody wasn't chosen is the first thing they said is, oh, I'm going to scrap all that. So you've just said the work that the godly elders of church that have worked on for a year is garbage, and it's all going to be your way you're going to, you're, you're an abuse, you're abusive. It's my way or the highway. Husbands, we've done this wrong, or men have done this wrong a lot, and that's why we've been suspect for so long, is that Dom, my dad was one of those, my way or the highway. Eventually my mom chose the highway, and it didn't go well, but that doesn't work. You don't abdicate your role in the face of adversity. If you quit when it's hard, who else is going to quit? everybody is going to quit. you got to fight through the adversity. A leader is sure of his calling. If you're not sure you should be a leader, you might not want to be a leader. What does it say about that in the New Testament? If you desire it, you desire a good thing. But if you're desiring it, you're, God is making it clear That He is empowering you and gifting you for such a time as this. Second Peter chapter one. Make your calling and election sure. Make your calling and election sure. You know your limitations. Mm. Are you an expert at everything? I I used to be called a jack of all trades. I could do everything a little bit, but nothing in mastery. You find somebody that has a mastery of something. Delegate. Delegate it to them. A lot of times we hear this, I do this for a day, and I don't, uh, my day job, and I don't want to do it. I'm a CPA. I don't want to be in charge of the treasury of the church. Sometimes that's the most qualified person that could possibly be in charge of the finance of your church. Why? Because he knows what it is to work in finances. If somebody can't balance their checkbook, you don't put them on the finance committee. You're resilient. What does resilient mean? Elasticity. You bounce back. You're not rigid. You bounce back. You're able. you're able to deal with it and you're able to come back. You don't snap when the wind You don't goes. break. You're passionate. You're passionate. You're passionate about God's purposes. You're courageous. You're going to stand up. You're going to stand up in a way that doesn't make you necessarily a target to everybody to shoot at, but you're going to fight on behalf of God. Sometimes we might actually stand up in a way that forces us to go to jail. Hasn't quite happened as much in this country, but in Canada and other countries, it happens all the time. A leader's discerning. You have to know the tricks of the enemy. The things that are trying to tear you down. You're disciplined, you're energetic. And I put the last one, you know how to delegate. If you try to carry everything on your shoulders, it will get so heavy that it will crush you eventually. Yes, sir. Number sixteen,
1: there should be a couple subheadings. One is we I had a pastor and this I love the man as far as like some of the things he did, but he did not know when to step down. And he then was number fifteen. And he was killing the church and a couple of us had to
0: Do the hard thing and say, "We need you to resign." I could probably add that one in there. Know, know when your term of leadership is up.
1: Oh, oh, um, BMW, BMW. Yes, but BMW, uh, their the leadership change. Mm -hmm. I overheard a little conversation, and he knew, he knew it was God's time. To hand the baton. And he did, I mean, they did it
0: well. And it's easy if you've groomed your replacement. Mm-hmm. But I have seen horrific stories where you bring somebody in and, you know, they, they make, in a year, well, they're going to turn over reins. And then the, that senior pastor, after their family has moved, says, uh, gets so scared of the change and then takes the reins and the church splits. Yeah,
1: so you mentioned Jane Getz mm-hmm. and the end of his book, The Measure church he has a whole chapter where he gives a seven year program when he turned
0: the church over to somebody else. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Why is it hard? Because Because it's scary for the next stage of the leader. It's been your baby for fifty or whatever years and all of a sudden you're handing that child off to the next person.
1: Well we we did that's why we left mission field is because we knew our mission was over. But we had people get, I wouldn't say violently, but very angry at us for saying, in two years we're leaving.
0: Well, people don't like change, yeah. and so and they might love you, and, and it gets hard, but you have to know, you know, so often the most effective way of turnover reigns is to, for that pastor not to stay in that church.
1: Yeah.
0: Rarely does, if that pastor stays in that church, does it work well, because then there's a, well, you were the old pastor, what do you think about what he's doing right now? You know, there's that, that dynamic, which is not fair to the new pastor.
1: No, we, yeah. We've seen it in other missionaries time and again. They just stay on and on and on and on. And their ministry
0: and the work that they're doing is those. And whose, whose ministry is this? Yes. It must be Christ. Christ, we're yeah. the under-shepherds. Whose sheep, who's sheep yeah. are they? If we're starting to damage the mission... We need to have the character enough to say, My time is done. If you're not
1: willing to give that up, you're serving to get your own needs met. Get you know, your own and needs you're met. It, your yeah. is wrapped up in the mission that God has given you and that's
0: wrong. That's gonna bite you. I've got these last application points, my time is up this morning and I thank you guys, but we have to nurture a Christ like servant hearted character. if there's ever a question, what's the answer? I mean, in any Bible question biz for for kids, what's the answer always going to be? Jesus! Jesus. (laughs) Who who should we be like? Jesus! Does it always fit the CEO model? No, sometimes you're going to make the hard decision of having to let somebody go because of the mission of the organization. You're going to have to do that. In the church, you're going to have to discipline people. You're going to have to actually exercise discipline, and sometimes that means...